This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Comedy is a tough business. And it's the rare star who can get to the top and stay there. But David Allen Greer has done it for decades. I never in a million years thought at my age, my career would be what it is. I'm in demand constantly. Yeah, this is amazing. I'm going to roll with this till the wheels fall off. I don't know if it's going to be big or small, but I'm going to be doing something. Comedy legend David Allen Greer next on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It takes a lot to break through in Hollywood. Talent, hard work, and a lot of luck. But to stay booked and busy for decades is a whole nother level of star power. One of the people who has it is comedian David Allen Greer. He had his big break in the 1990s with the iconic sketch comedy show in Living Color. He's been in films and television ever since. Most recently... He co-starred as a pot-smoking grandpa in the Jamie Foxx Netflix comedy, Dad, Stop Embarrassing Me. Why can't you be like every other father, just get drunk and pass out? It's 2019, for God's sake. It's 2021, for God's sake. Hey, damn, this some good shit. I recently spoke with David Allen Greer about his career and how his new show with Jamie Foxx came together. It's about his relationship with his daughter, Corinne, centering around that age when she's about 14, 15 years old. I play his dad. The concept for the show is really a throwback in nature. And he really felt, this is in the middle of the pandemic, this is the first thing I really did. We started working on the show in August. And it was like a block away from where we did in Living Color. Um, I lived really nearby. It all worked out because literally at that point, I was like, I don't know. The main thing that convinced me to do the show was the COVID protocol because they had an airtight system and I felt really comfortable. And Jamie was there all along going, don't worry about it, man. We got you. We got you. I will clean up the stage myself. You know? You've worked with Jamie Foxx and with a lot of majority black creators. What's the difference between that experience and working on projects that are led by white folks? You know, as a black artist, an actor, I can't tell you how much time is wasted and spent trying to explain to white creatives why I can't do this, why what you're asking me to say can't come out of my mouth, Um, trying to negotiate what would be better, why it's not working for me, all that stuff. When you come into a soundstage or a creative environment in which Jamie and I have known each other for over 30 years. I'm comfortable. I'm free to just do my thing. When you know somebody has your back creatively, then that allows you the freedom to do your thing. So that's kind of what what was reignited with us working together. So after we wrapped, 
I immediately did a movie with Jamie in Atlanta. It's like futuristic, sci-fi kind of trip, yet it's throwback in terms of design. John Boyega's in it. Oh, so John Boyega, <laughs> Jamie Foxx, and David, like literally I am the like take my money meme. It's like, it's so bizarre, but it's coming out. I don't know when it will come out, but it was so much fun to do. So I'll tell you a quick story. So Jamie said, listen, man, we're doing this movie. And I was like, yeah, but where, man? I can't. Because I told her, I said, first of all, I can't fly in and out of town. This is at the beginning of this year. I don't feel comfortable. I'm not vaccinated. I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so I figured that was the end. Mm-hmm. So we hang up and the agent <laughs> calls back and said, all right, I understand your feelings. We all understand that. If they sent a private plane, I was like, damn. Right. <laughs> How would you feel? I was like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I don't want to stay in a hotel because I haven't. David didn't understand. Because he goes, look, we have a house for you. So I was like, we're doing the movie. Right. <laughs> you had me at private jet, but I was really just kind of holding out for the house. I met years ago, man. <laughs> Listen. The universe spoke to me, and my lesson that day was ask for what you require, what you deserve. You'd be surprised. Sometimes you get it. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more with comedy legend and actor David Allen Greer. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. If you're enjoying a word, please subscribe, rate, and review. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with actor David Allen Greer. You know, look, some comedians do this, some entertainers do this, some actors do this. You're actually very, you're active on Twitter. Like, you're making jokes, you talk to people. Is that something that you just sort of got into because it's like, hey, I like the sort of public discourse anyway. Do you find that's introduced you to new audiences? Was it just you keeping in touch with America? It's a way to keep in touch with America, especially over the last year. But when I first got on Twitter, it took me a while to actually figure it out. Because mm-hmm. for the first two weeks, I, I, you know, threw out a bunch of stuff. And it was more like trying to write jokes. <laughs> and these guys would be like, bad joke, unfollow. I expect <laughs> And I'm like, you expected more for free? 24 hours a day? No, man. You don't get get a Sunday meal. You know, I was trying to negotiate and try and find my way until I just talk the way I talk. Mm -hmm. So if I'm scrolling in Twitter and something catches my eye, I'm just going to talk to Twitter like if you and I were just out having a couple beers. Mm-hmm. That's how I, and once I started doing that, then everything was fine, I think. What was the point where you realized I need to protect my privacy in a way that you didn't think of when you first started your career? Well, it was probably when In Living Color was on. Yeah, I remember staying in um, uh, Palm Beach, Florida, and the hotel staff, which were surprisingly largely African American. Mm-hmm. called me every 30 to 45 seconds Wow! to say, hello, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> they brought me fruit. 
They slipped things under my door, the sign. Wow. That was a very young show. Mm -hmm. And uh, the audience was in and of the moment. I mean, mm -hmm. it was all about the culture of hip hop from yeah. dress to music to comedy to language, everything. And that was very, very in the moment, a young uh, audience. And that elicited that kind of response, you know. And one of your most famous recurring characters was in the sketch, Men on Film. You and Damon Wayans played two flamboyantly gay men. I just want to give a heads up that some of our listeners may find this offensive, but we're going to play a clip. Then there's Ghost. You know, Patrick Swayze was the real standout in this film. You know, I breathe life into his spirit any day. <laughs> Even if I did have to go through Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> Perish the thought. Yes, indeed. Now we come to Dick Tracy. You know, I love the title, but the movie just left me limp. You got a lot of comedians today, they complain about cancel culture. They say, you know, we, we can't make jokes anymore. But there's also an argument to be made that some humor is dated. As somebody who's been in the comedy game as long as you have, what do you think about these current arguments? You know, here's my thing on Men on Film. You mm -hmm. know, at the time, as far as I know, I don't think there will, there were no out gay or trans, you know, gender fluid cast members. Yeah. We, I, I know there was nothing in that comedy in which I felt was homophobic, gay hatred. Right. Um, but I also am smart enough to know it's not what you how your heart was behind the joke. It's how that joke or that characterization lands with other people. So that was a long time ago. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't think we could do that now, which is fine. You know, if, if, if Living Color were on now, I would hope that there would be more than one gay cast members right. in the show. And then they could tackle this humor using their voice. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more with comedian and actor David Allen Greer. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with actor David Allen Greer. So, David, you've had a long connection to a particular piece of black art, uh, a soldier's play, which also turned into the movie A Soldier's Story, which is about a murder mystery that happens on a segregated military base in World War II. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences of just being in the play version on Broadway and, and, and how your career has sort of gone full circle with this particular piece of art? Okay, so my journey with Soldier's Play, my college roommate, his name is actor, his name is Reg E. Cathay, who passed yes. away. But we, yes. we were college roommates in Michigan. I didn't know that. I didn't, you and Reg, wow, wow. Okay, I, that's, that's some black history for me. He was in my class at Yale Drama School. And so when Reggie auditioned for Soldier's Play, mm -hmm. he didn't get it, but he called me and he said, listen, man, there's this role in this play called Soldier's Play. We all, we all heard about it because it, mm. it was it, it had just won the, the Pulitzer that year yeah. at the Negro Ensemble. And he said, I can't do it because I'm not I don't play guitar and all that. But but you do. 
-hmm. So you should just go there and get this role. They're going to replace Larry Riley. So I called my agents. I went over there. I read for Douglas Turner Ward. And they put me in a place. So they give me tickets to go see soldiers play the night before I go in. Mm -hmm. So I sit in the back of this tiny theater off Broadway. And there on stage is Denzel Washington, Sam Jackson, Larry Riley, Adolph wow. Caesar. Wow. And it was like a murderer's row. I mean, they were killing it. And I was so, I was like, oh my God. Well, I got, ooh, Lord. <laughs> you know, so uh, that I went into the play and I was in the play for about six months. And I left, I went to Dream Girls. Then we later, Larry Riley, Denzel, and Adolph and I, we all did the movie. Um, Kenny Leon called me last year and he said he was directing the first Broadway production of The Soldier's Play. I didn't even know. I thought in 35 years it had been on Broadway. Mm -hmm. So I accepted and I did the sergeant in that production. That has been three times, three different roles. That has been the complete evolution. It is crazy. I never thought I would be back in this production again and like this. Uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Life is amazing. I could not have predicted this. A whole new generation of viewers got to know you in the family drama on OWN, Queen Sugar. You play a really bad man. Jimmy Dale, the abusive ex-husband of matriarch Violet Bordelone. She's played by actress Tina Lifford. Here's a clip. Listen, I am sorry how we left things. I was just a young, dumb man back then. Everybody makes mistakes, but not everybody's man enough to admit to them. Some come to their dignity later in life. You're the last person who can ever talk about dignity, Jimmy Dale. Get out of my house. So that's how you're going to do me? After all this time? You're damn right. There's the door using. Still got that spice in you. What was that like? What was... What was your friends and colleagues reaction like? What was the audience reaction like to seeing David Allen Greer play this basically a modern day version of Mr. from A Color Purple? My agent called me like, look, we got this offer from uh, Queen Sugar. <laughs> you know, when you hear that, it's like, we'll pass on your behalf. And I said, <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Well, what's the offer? And they said, well, it's like two or three episodes. They haven't really figured it out. Uh, we'll send you the sides. And our agreement is always never turn down any role. I don't care how small it is. Mm -hmm. Let me decide. So they send me the sides. I read the first scene and I called them back. I was like, I don't care. This show been on 20 years. I got to do this. Right. Because, you know, I am not Jimmy Dale, but I know people like that. You can right. smell them. You mm -hmm. know, through the pages. So that scene that you played, the way I played it was as a vampire, mm -hmm. meaning uh, the rules of a vampire is you have to invite a vampire yes. to your house. So when I came to the door, I, I wouldn't come in until, because I, I kept saying, he says in the story, you're not going to invite me in? Mm. Well, I just want to come in. I mean, can I just come through the threshold? I just want to see you. It's been so long. And so as soon as she opens the door mm -hmm. and I walk down that hallway, it's like he unfolds and develops and spreads his wings and he claims a space like, ah, you fucked up now. 
you never should have let me in. Nope. He tossed <laughs> his hat on the table. He's looking around up and down. Yeah, this is my house. So it was so juicy and so much fun to play that role. Because another thing, real evil, when you talk about devilish people, yes. evil people, you think, oh, he's going to be twitching and slimy and drooly. No, man. Yeah. Most times when we've been around someone where you discover, oh, this is a bad person. They're already in your business. Yes. Because they have to be, because they have to gain your confidence. And the other thing is there was an obvious attraction. Yes. You understand? Mm -hmm. That this woman still has, although she has fought to cure herself of this addiction. Those weaknesses are still there. Those weaknesses are still there. And he knows those buttons to push. So that was an awesome, awesome experience. So walking around Atlanta, which is the blackest city on On the earth in the United States. In this country. All the sisters, they would stop. I remember it was a a carload of black women. "Ah, You're not going to walk by and give us a hug. I had a whole carload of black women hugging each and every one of them. Because it's weird. They know me from all this other work, yet they reveled in what I did in Queen Sugar. I can't tell you how many uh, women hit me up on social media saying, you remind me of a relationship I was in when I was much younger. You remind me of this man that was in my life. And they would go on and on and on and on. So it was awesome. So I wanted to ask this, uh, and this is, I, I know we could go on. This is absolutely exciting and amazing for me. So you, huge career from, from theater to movies to television. What do you think your comedy legacy will be? You know, we just lost Paul Mooney a couple of weeks ago, and everybody talks about how Paul Mooney touched everything. Where do you think your legacy is, is going to be when this is all said and done in another maybe 50 years? I don't know. I mean, I don't worry about that. I'll be dead anyway. <laughs> I leave that. I'm, I'm serious. I leave that for others to figure out. But I know in trying to plan and craft my career, mm-hmm. there was one year in which Michael Keaton did Clean and Sober in the same year that he did Beetlejuice. And I, I used that as a template because I said, that's what I want to do. So, so showing that range, completely polar opposites, yet just ripping it in all areas. Um, I just wanted to be a working actor. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to be, a working actor. And, and I've surpassed my goals. You know, I, I, I'm going to be 65 at the end of this month. And I never in a million years thought at my age, my career would be what it is. I'm in demand constantly. The year, this pandemic year has probably been one of the best years of my career. I never, I didn't see that coming last year. I mean, like everybody else, I was like, well, I guess this is it. (laughs) This is what's going to take us out. This is like war of the worlds. Um, I really could not have anticipated this. And, and, and for the first time, I have a, a sense of calm, meaning I know 
I'm going to get another job. Mm. The vast majority of time in, in most actors' careers, I don't care how famous you perceive them to be, is spent wondering, will we work again? Yeah. You know, and I, I feel secure that I don't know if it's going to be big or small, but I'm going to be doing something. So I, I never thought. I thought I would be just retired and, you know, doing other stuff. But, um, yeah, this is amazing. I'm going to roll with this till the wheels fall off. Comedian and actor and legend, David Allen Greer, thank you so much. Hey, man, take care. It's my pleasure. And that's a word for this week. If you're enjoying a word, please subscribe, rate, and review. Did you know you could be listening to this show ad-free? All it takes is a Slate Plus membership. It's just $1 for the first month, and it also helps us keep making our podcast. Sign up now at slate.com slash a word plus. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Saluja is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Words.